This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a political odd couple. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper and Ohio Governor John Kasich have appeared on national talk shows together, written op-eds, and have even entertained running for the White House on a split ticket. The Democrat and Republican want to make a point about health care. They say reforms that come from one party are doomed to fail in Congress. Both governors spoke with me Monday with Kasich on the phone from Ohio. Governor Hickenlooper, Governor Kasich, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Governor Hickenlooper, you've laid out some principles. Health care reform should make health care more affordable. It should give power to the states, stabilize insurance markets. Uh, those may sound great, but they lack specifics. And so I understand you're now working on specific proposals. When can we expect to see that plan for health care reform that your two offices are working on together? Well, I think that over the next month or two, we will come forward. The key here is bipartisanship, and that doesn't just immediately blossom forth. And there are some things that Governor Kasich's people disagree with our people. We're trying to work through those things and figure out, you know, how can we make more stable the private insurance exchanges, but at the same time, recognize we've got to control costs? Let me jump in and try to answer this. Look, we're getting very close. I just talked to my guys today and men and women who are working on this with John's people. And um, we think we'll have some specifics here. Uh, John, I actually think we could have it within a week. You know, the Senate's going to start in September. And, uh, you know, John and I are both willing to give on stuff. I mean, it's not our egos in the middle of this. I'm now becoming more optimistic that we're going to have a joint agreement, which we'll then send to other governors. And in terms of the specifics, I'm not going to get into specifics with you till we have it all ironed up. And I'm it's not going to be some pie in the sky, way up there kind of stuff. These will be things that we will address that will have a specific uh, solutions. And one of the things we're finding out is that the states actually do have some power to do some things unique to them, as long as these insurance markets are going to be stabilized and there isn't the threat like all of a sudden there's not going to be any of these cost-sharing funding you, you mentioned the cost-sharing reductions. These are payments to insurance companies to help cover uh, low-income people, and they work to stabilize the market, and there's been a lot of uh, questions around their future, whether the Trump administration will continue paying them. So I heard there that Governor Kasich didn't want to get too specific before a plan came out, but I think it's safe to ask what you each see as the most important thing to fix about the Affordable Care Act. Governor Hickenlooper, why don't you take that? Well, I think that there are several important things, but the probably top on, on our list would be this uh, notion of having some sort of reinsurance to make sure uh, the high-cost pool is not causing higher rates for all the people seeking insurance in the private markets. Explain that to someone who doesn't know what reinsurance sure. is very briefly. So what happens is, is too often people have been going in, onto the exchanges, getting their insurance when they're sick. Then when they get better, they get off the insurance. And so what happens is you have a concentration of people who are very expensive and have lots of Ill- illnesses on the insurance, and some of them are very, very ill and have huge costs. We have several in the state that are 4 or $5 million a year. And who thus raise the cost of insurance for everyone. Right, unless there's some way of pulling or balancing that, pulling them out of the pool. And that's you use reinsurance in almost every type of insurance program to cut off those hilltops, as we say. Governor Kasich, what is the first thing you'd fix about the Affordable Care Act? Well, look, we're just focusing on the insurance markets now and trying to stabilize them. We're not even talking about Medicaid at this point because, you know, that's part of Medicaid expansion, but we're not going to go there now. 
That should come later as part of an overall entitlement reform package. But uh, my that, that is to say your plan won't touch Medicaid. It's, it's, it's not looking at that. No, we're, we're trying to stabilize the insurance markets mm-hmm. here first. I mean, you have to find things that you can agree upon. And this is the most critical aspect of what needs to be fixed. So, and I don't know what else. I, I can't get into everything else because it's complicated, a lot of insurance reform, and it's going to take me personally a number of hours to sit down to work through it all. But I'm being told that we are getting extremely close. To, we have a lot of areas that we agree upon. We have some areas that we are in some disagreement on that they're going to work through in the next 24, 48, 72 hours and see if we can get somewhere where we have a complete package. Can I have an example of where you have disagreed? One of the issues is the individual mandate, what you do about that. John and I have talked about it. I said, you know, we have an individual mandate on car insurance, and 15% of our people don't have car insurance. So how do you deal with that? But one of the areas that I think we agree upon specifically is increasing the number of employees that would have to provide health insurance under the, the mandate. That is to say, increasing the number of employees that a company must have if they provide health insurance. There are companies who say that's just too low right now. Yeah, the mandate, right. So you don't want to be putting smaller companies in a position where they won't hire any more people because they can't afford the mandate. What is most important to know is that John and I both agree we need to have a solid plan, not just some broad generalities, but specifics. I'd like to ask a more fundamental question, because the, the guiding principles that you lay out don't seem to say that health care is a right. Uh, certainly some people say it's not the role of government to guarantee health coverage. Others say, yes, it should be a fundamental right, especially in a country that has the world's largest economy. To each of you, is, is health care a right that should guide your efforts to reform the American system? Governor Kasich? Well, I don't know. I don't think that's that important in this. I mean, we want everybody to have health insurance. I mean, that's how I feel. Is it a right or is it a privilege or whatever? I mean, I don't know why that's an, why that declaration is important. I guess if I had to choose, I would say, yeah, everybody should have a right to have health insurance. But so what? I mean, the question is, how do you do it? And that's what we're working on. So philosophical debates are not as important as the need right now to make sure that these markets function and that people can get coverage. Governor Hickenlooper, how would you answer the question about right? I would certainly agree with uh, John that the, the real essence here and the important thing is to, is to begin to working through the practical applications of how we get more people insured. And I think we all agree to that. You know, I come from the school that I think it is a right. I'm not sure where we, how much health care is included in that right, but some basic coverage. Uh, when I talk to most citizens in Colorado, they feel that some basic coverage should be everyone's right. John and I both agree. I think virtually all Americans agree. I don't know anybody that doesn't. You want to make sure that people have some decent coverage. Primary care is important. Catastrophic coverage is important. We don't want anybody to get bankrupted because they get sick. So some sort of coverage for all Americans is ideal because if they don't have any coverage, then they end up living in the emergency room of hospitals, driving up costs when they're sicker. They don't get the treatment they want. So we're both of, of the view that, of course, we want people to have health care coverage. So then if you get into the individual mandate, you say, okay, everybody should be forced to, well, is it going to work? We're, I don't know if it's going to work. It doesn't work when it comes to auto insurance. Is an individual mandate going to work when it comes to health insurance? So we're working around an issue like that, trying to come up with a solution. 
A lot of proposed fixes to the Affordable Care Act involve more money from the federal government, subsidies for insurance companies, as we mentioned, those cost-sharing reductions, $7 billion just last year alone. Will this plan require an infusion of federal cash, do you think, Governor Hickenlooper? In its basic nature, our goal, at least my goal, uh, is to look at being cost-responsible. In other words, we will do everything we can not to add costs in terms of, of how we stabilize these the, these private markets. That being said, if you're looking at a reinsurance program, there's going to be some cost there uh, to make sure that it works. Ultimately, I think in cases like that, there will be corresponding savings by people having their you know lower insurance rates throughout the whole community. So there's a way to recapture some of that money. Governor Kasich, I was, I was reading back to your days in Congress in the 90s. Uh, you were known for being quite fiscally conservative. You favored a small federal government and, according to the New York Times, emphasized individual responsibility for education and health care. sounds like a lot of the conservative members of, of your party in Congress today, the very people you have to convince to support whatever plan you and Governor Hickenlooper come up with. Uh, but you expanded Medicaid in Ohio, and you recently vetoed an attempt to slow down that Medicaid expansion there. I wonder if your own opinions about health care have, have changed. No, I don't think I'm any different than where I was. I think that it is possible uh, when you're running a government to make it more effective, more efficient, and yet cover more people. I've been able to take a Medicaid program in Ohio that was growing at 9%. It now grows at 3%, and there are more people being helped. This is what John was saying at the top of the, of the interview here. It's very possible to, to grind out some efficiencies while at the same time making the program work better. I mean, I remember when Kindle first came out, you know, the, uh, the, the Kindle device mm-hmm. costs, costs a lot of money, okay? Now they, like, give you one, right? And so it, it's more effective and it costs less. Before we go, you've both talked about covering everyone. If it's not a right, at least that's the goal. Uh, some might hear that and say, single payer is the answer. That's a way to cover everyone. Uh, just briefly, is that on the table in these discussions, or is that a non-starter? Governor Hickenlooper? If it's something we're discussing, I haven't heard it. <laughs> okay, you've not brought it to the table. Governor Kasich? No, no, no. Look, the problem with single payer is we have three single payer systems in the country. One's called Medicaid, one's called Medicare, and one's called the VA. The single payer is not an answer. But, you know, the single pair that we have needs to be improved, and the innovation we get from the private sector can help it serve people better. Governor Kasich, we're going to let you go. Thank you for your time. Good to be with you. Thank you. One last item, though, on healthcare, Governor Hickenlooper, before we move on. You did tell constituents last week that this partnership you have with Governor Kasich is gaining traction in Congress. Why do you say that? What evidence do you have? Well, because they're the, the problem solvers group in Congress, there are 40 Republicans and Democratic members of Congress that are, have, have taken this up, and they're going to look for some constructive solutions. Also, Senator Murray and Senator Alexander, uh, again, a Democrat, Senator Murray from uh, Washington, Senator Alexander from Tennessee, they are now holding hearings, and hopefully in those hearings we'll get a chance to present hopefully what by that point a number of both Republican and, and Democratic governors think look like good ideas. Governor Hickenlooper, let's move on from health care and to the oil and gas industry. State regulators and Colorado's attorney general recently warned the community of Thornton that the rules it's considering this month to limit drilling are illegal. How many more of these types of letters have been sent to other communities in Colorado recently? I don't know. I, uh, I haven't been briefed on that recently, so 
Uh, I do know that we occasionally, and again, it's not like once a year, it's more frequently than that, have uh, city councils or town councils that feel strongly, largely as a reflection of their citizens, that they want to have a stronger voice in limiting oil and gas activity in their community. So, And should every community that raises that voice expect a letter from the state? Um, if they are proposing laws or, or regulations that we think are in conflict with state law and have the potential to be judged by a court as a taking of people's private property, yes, we will send them a letter. The property being the minerals beneath the surface. Yes, there are many cases older retired people that they've owned those minerals for sometimes generations. Uh, and all of a sudden we say, all right, the, now it's going to be a 2,500-foot setback. And in some cases, that means that those minerals are suddenly overnight through the action of a local government without value. The question of whether there should be more oil and gas regulation is also playing out in the courts. Uh, There's a potentially huge court decision that opens the door for state regulators to consider public health and the environment much more in its permitting. Uh, We're waiting to see if the Colorado Supreme Court will take that up or let the lower court ruling stand. A teenage climate activist brought this case forward. Uh, How big a deal would it be if this ruling stands? Um, How much would it change the decisions about where drilling can happen in Colorado? Well, there's a lot of debate. Uh, And again, I'm not a lawyer. I look at it, I think the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission has a tremendous focus on making sure that the public safety is always first and foremost. Uh, So I don't think it would have that large a, a difference. But There are a lot of people that disagree with me and think it would change uh, what local communities can do and and how the Oil and Gas Conservation Commission would have to respond to some of these uh, local communities. Finally, to water. You signed the state's first water plan in late 2015. At the time, it was estimated to cost about $20 billion to implement. That was a jaw-dropping figure back then. We just learned it could double to $40 billion dollars. Uh, What the heck would all that money go towards? Well, let's be blunt. I don't think there was a doubling. The water plan was looking at capacity. So how do we have enough reservoirs or other places to store water? It could be old groundwater reservoirs. But what is our ability? How much water do we need to be able to store and deliver and use to make sure we can maintain our agricultural industry as well as our urban and commercial industries. That was where the $20 um, billion, billion dollars. Yeah, I was going to say million, but I knew you'd never let me get away with it. <laughs> the, the extra $20 billion is money that is going to be used to a large extent. That comes from uh, water treatment centers. So that's a whole different, you know, you get your bill at home, you get a water bill. That's what you're paying to get water in your house. But then you also get a sewage bill, a wastewater bill. And that's what we all pay to have our water treated once we're done with it. And that wastewater treatment bill was not intended to be in the Colorado water plan. So that's something we're going to be spending money on, and everyone, all we all pay our bills, and that's how that money that gets paid for. Are, are there some gaps in wastewater? Probably some. It's not. I don't think it's twenty billion dollars. Most of that, the bills we pay are generally enough to take care of that. Although some communities have uh, gaps. So you think the twenty billion related to wastewater should not be lumped in with the twenty billion for the statewide no, water plan? Where's this money going to come from? Even if it's the, the half figure. So the original $20 billion, if you uh, sit down and look at it, there's 12 to $14 billion are going to come from paying your water bill, just like everyone already does. 
then there are severance taxes. So a chunk of what the state collects for severance taxes from oil and gas activity goes towards water projects. So there's several billion dollars in there. We do have a gap of several billion in just that in the water plan. And we're working on trying to figure out right, where does that come from. But that's three out of 20. It's not a huge thing. And it's important for people to remember before they get really agitated. What we're trying to do here is keep water on agricultural land, right? The worst case scenarios mean that we dry up part of our agricultural landscape. It does not mean that Denver or Aurora or Fort Collins or Pueblo or Grand Junction go dry. And why is it important to you that this arid state continue to be a huge ag uh, producer? Well, A, it's a huge part of our economy, right? So you're, you're, you're looking at close to $40 billion a year or over $40 billion a year. But even more deeply than that, it's, a, it's an issue of sustainability. You want to have your own food resources close to where your state is in case something terrible happens. It's, it's basic, long-term, sustainable planning. Governor, thank you for being with us. Sure. Always a pleasure. Governor John Hickenlooper speaks with me regularly at his office. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's not just Confederate statues. College dorms can honor controversial figures in history. That's how it was decades ago at CU Boulder. Nichols Hall had been named for David Nichols, who took part in a shameful chapter in Colorado history. The issue came to a head in the 1980s when students held demonstrations to remove the name. At the time, school officials reached out to a young CU professor named Patty Limerick for help. Today, she's the state historian, and given the events in Charlottesville, she has been thinking a lot lately about Colorado's own struggles with names like Nichols, Stapleton, and Shivington. And Patty Limerick, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. David Nichols was a Boulder County Sheriff and then became Speaker of the House in Colorado's Territorial Legislature. He also played a role in the slaughter of at least 150 American Indians during the Sand Creek Massacre. Uh, why, a long time later, in 1961, did the university name a building after him? The university did not name that building in the 19th century, and that's extremely important. For Thanks for reminding them of 1961. So many of these statues that we're fighting about now are not from the era in which the people represented in the statues or the plaques or the uh, tributes and names lived. It's much later that this happens. In our case, it was a particularly, uh, oh, I guess, un thought-provoking occasion. There were two buildings on campus named after, named Fleming. There was a dormitory, there was the new law school. So the struggle in 1961 was not about any issue of any great consequence. It was just, how do you get another name? So if you say to somebody, meet me at Fleming Hall, they know which building to go to. I see. So some bureaucrats, not to use the term pejoratively, some hardworking employees of the state of Colorado at the University of Colorado ran around and looked for the name of some noted person that could be adopted for this building. They hit the name David Nichols. There was folklore, no proof, but folklore that David Nichols had played a very big part in getting the university located in Boulder. He certainly did uh, work the legislature, whether he took a heroic midnight ride as folklore indicated, who knows? That's not uh, recorded at the time. That brought him, though, this folklore brought him to the attention of the people looking for a name. At that time, 1961, 
the very first serious, serious book on the Sand Creek Massacre came out that very year. The people looking for the new name didn't know about that book, so they actually felt that one of the reasons to recognize David Nichols was because of his important role in responding to the Indian troubles of the 1860s. I think it was phrasing like that. But so, over the years, more of Nichols' history came to light. And yes, and there were yes. protests about the dorm's name. They came yes. to a boiling point in 1987, and there was a rally calling for the building to be renamed. Uh, the mm-hmm. lieutenant governor at the time, Mike Callahan, said about Nichols, whatever he did for Colorado, uh, associated with the university, is overshadowed by his crimes against his fellow man. And and this is as more came to light about the Sand Creek mm-hmm. Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to say that the Sand Creek Massacre, one of the terrible, terrible aspects of that was that the officers lost control. So it is very difficult to say who did what exactly during that event on November 29th, 1864. The officers were not playing any role of leadership or or control. So to say exactly what David Nichols did that day, pretty hard. We do have a document from a month before where he was the sole commander of a unit that had gone out, uh, in the phrase of the time, to punish Indians who were suspected of raiding or just being suspicious characters. And on that occasion, he wrote an official report where he recorded that he had uh, presided over the killing of a woman, an Indian woman, and uh, possibly a teenager. This was at a time when the rules of the United States Army were that women and children, uh, civilians, must be spared. So we have David Nichols on record a little before the Sand Creek Massacre. He certainly was a full-hearted, proud participant in the Sand Creek Massacre, but in order to track where he was at any particular moment uh, and what he was doing, very difficult. But we do have a report from him on... Uh, a smaller incident that has the same issues. At the same time, you found that he might not have had such a pivotal role in locating the university in Boulder. There was a lot of lore there. Well, this is a wonderful thing about the human mind and and human communities is that they start chatting. People just start chatting and then they say things to each other. We say now that we have thought bubbles or we have uh, these isolated communities. Well, they did not have the internet, but they had a, a pretty comparable capacity of telling each other things that weren't particularly accurate. And if you, enough people tell you that and they're credible people, you can say, well, here's something I know. So folklore by 20 years afterwards had recorded this notion that Nichols had gotten on his horse on a cold winter night, ridden 26 miles from Denver uh, to Boulder, gotten a commitment of land and support for the university, ridden back. And that's why I am fortunate to be teaching where I am teaching right now. And there's no evidence at the time that he did that. There's nothing in any newspapers. You couldn't, on one side, you couldn't prove that he didn't do it. But you certainly can't make the case that we know that this was a real contribution. Hmm. Plus, this is a scramble that happens in every new territory that someone's going to get, some community's going to get the prison, some communities are going to get the mental asylum, one's going to get the university. So in some ways, that's the stake there. I'm happy to be in Boulder. And there are other lovely places to have a university in, in Colorado. So there's even a question about just how extraordinary the heroism is of choosing a particular locale for a particular 
uh, territorial or state institution. But there's something intoxicating about the idea of a midnight ride. So yes. d- did you advocate yes. for a name change then for Nichols I Hall? I did. I did. And I should just say that that whole Paul Revere thing, I mean, this business of, of heroic rides, that's a large part of American folklore. So it's not surprising that various people end up casting that. I did advocate for the name change. I didn't do that fast. I actually thought that I was going to recommend that we keep the name and we build a reckoning with the name David Nichols into our instruction, our freshman orientation, our welcoming of students to CU. I thought, what an important way to remind students that a complicated history preceded them, and we are all in some way or another um, inheritors of that. So then the first, the fact that it was named in 1961 was a problem because I don't really see what I would achieve by telling students about some bureaucrats in a tizzy trying to find a name. That doesn't seem like a very resonant way to welcome freshmen. To tell them about the massacre, the Sand Creek Massacre, that is an extremely complicated story. I don't think you can tell it accurately, the uh, events leading up to the massacre, if you don't take an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. So you can see freshmen who are just, well, I'm in college, I'm starting college, I haven't been packed, who's my roommate? And there you are up as a professor talking and talking and talking about how the territorial governor did this, it had these results. I think you would have a very uh, disengaged audience until you got to the perfectly horrible stories of brutality of what happened on November 29th. And I don't think that's a way to welcome freshmen to a campus. And so this is always one option, right, is to keep a name, is perhaps to keep a statue and then amend it somehow with a little bit more information. But that felt Uh in a way like a, a clunky solution. And so eventually, I think after meeting with uh, members of these nations, it was changed to Arapaho Cheyenne Hall. Is that right? It is Cheyenne Arapaho Hall. There was a, a considerable gap between the removing of the name and the deliberations. The chancellor at that time, Jim Corbridge, was a water attorney, water law professor, and he knew a lot about tribal issues. So he was very committed to making sure this proceeded properly this time. Uh, the bad news is that, yes, well, the good news is that, yes, it is called Cheyenne Arapaho Hall. The bad news is that the great, great, great majority of the residents don't know why it's called that. There's a, I think there's a display case. Nobody stops at that display case. Uh, the students don't know. It's a tribute to the people whose lives were are still very connected to our locale. So they have abbreviated it to Shiho. Oh. So that is not a very successful historical reckoning to call it Shiho. It's not the student's fault. I've certainly have had students in classes who were grateful to have a chance to know this story. Uh, several years ago, some of the resident assistants had an amazing reunion with some of the Indian people, Indian students who'd been protesters um, holding the prayer vigils. And with me, it was great, but I don't know that we had more than eight or nine students. So well, perhaps, there's a huge question. Perhaps yeah, we sorry. can share this interview with them, Patty Limerick, or they may be listening even as we speak. We're, we're speaking with uh, the state's historian that is uh, Patty Limerick, who also leads the Center of the American West at CU Boulder. Uh, And the thrust of this conversation really is about this debate over how we memorialize controversial figures in our history. And uh, in his controversial press conference at Trump Tower recently, President Trump talked about how removing the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville could be a slippery slope. I wonder, he said, is George Washington next week? Is Thomas Jefferson the week after? You know, you really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Uh, both Washington and Jefferson were slave owners. As Colorado state historian, what, what do you think about what Trump said there? I join 
people, a number of whom may well be smarter than I, who have pointed out that there is a vast difference in the names that appeared in that quotation. Washington and Jefferson, who were, as others on the planet, people who had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, slavery, other matters of, of we won't go there with personal life issues with those folks. Anyway, they were complicated people. So they were people who dedicated a great share of their time on the planet to creating a new nation with important ideals. That's what they did. And it's a complicated character portrayal for both of them, and that's okay. They tried to create a nation that had high ideals. Robert E. Lee tried to take that nation down. Robert E. Lee put a good share of his time of visible, active public life into ending the nation that Jefferson and Washington had created. That is not a slippery slope. That is a very clear distinction between when a a calculation might say this person had, he was a human being and he had some serious flaws and he has some achievements that we benefit from every day. So that's an easy one. As to how, this is my dream, now you're going to hear a very visionary, hopeful moment here. All of these events are so much better than people yawning about history and saying that they hated their history class in high school where they had to memorize dates. It's great that people are deeply emotionally engaged by history. What we have to work on very hard is our techniques for harvesting that curiosity, that energy, that emotion. Right now, we are not getting a very high grade. I'm a professor and I get to give grades, so we're not getting a very high grade in how we perform as a society in this. The opportunity is vast for us to think about our past, our present, the connection between those, and how we ourselves are living and what what posterity is going to think about us. Do you, do you think, though, that it's always that black and white? So you see a very clear distinction between Robert E. Lee and the Founding Fathers, but but are there are there historical figures where there is a bit more gray area? Yes, and I guess I wouldn't go for black and white. Uh, I wouldn't in any way say, well, let's not pay attention to Washington and Jefferson's records as slaveholders. I'm not, I wouldn't say, I mean, it seems very mixed, uh, very complex in all those cases. I would say there are some people, uh, John Shivington might be one of them, the the proud leader of the Sand Creek Massacre, although even he troubles us by having been a very uh, committed opponent to slavery, an abolitionist, and a, a person who held off the Confederates with the Union soldiers. So even he won't let us just say, got him, got him pinned. We just don't have anything complicated to say about him. I think it's it's a pretty rare occasion when the black and white good guys, bad guys thing is unmistakable. Um, yeah, and perhaps that's a uh, poor turn of phrase on my part, given well, the, it's okay. the, the, a... the context here. But you, know, you, you talk about um, having, you know, like a more robust debate in a fuller sense of history mm-hmm. and how it's taught. And it makes me think of a piece you wrote in 1997, Patty Lemerick in the New York Times, an opinion piece where you offered an idea for how to handle controversial monuments and memorials, uh, calling them managed contention sites, which would offer a place near memorials for different sides to voice their views, and that these could be places where we engage each other. It makes me think a, a bit of the the statue that's in front of the state capitol. I was there just yesterday mm-hmm. interviewing mm-hmm. the governor, and it's a, it's a monument to Union soldiers but it, it acknowledges, and this came years later, the role that some of those soldiers played in the Sand Creek Massacre, mm-hmm. so that one site can hold that tension and even be a forum for discussion. The forum for discussion part is the key. I, I appreciate that the plaque is there. 
I don't know that the American people are noted for their great enthusiasm for reading plaques <laughs> when they're walking somewhere else. I mean, that might be something that other people know about and I haven't had a chance to observe. I feel that this is like the employment opportunity of all times for young people who want to major in history, whose parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts tell them, don't major in history, you can't find a job. Society so needs to have those young people stationed at those sites and to have them equipped with methods and strategies and techniques for leading an informed conversation about those places. There is a huge question about who gets to participate in that. Would we? Do we want to open those occasions of civic dialogue to white supremacists? Probably not. Do we want to have a, a satellite area where very trained young people and very trained young social workers work together on finding a way to talk with the people whose, whose opinions at this point are so toxic and so um, corrosive to human dignity that they, we would not just have them gather around the statue and take part in our conversations. But we don't have to shun them. There are astounding studies and books now of remarkable people who have taken up conversations across these boundaries and been able, in some cases, to actually convert someone who held... Um, A different belief. Yes. Uh-huh. There's been an effort to change the name of the Stapleton neighborhood in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, it was named after Democrat Benjamin Stapleton, who was a member of the mm-hmm. Ku Klux Klan, and he was Denver's mayor for like a really long stretch and with time in between. But in the 20s, the 30s and the 40s, he's credited with many civic improvements at that time. Again, uh, it's not a question of whether someone is purely good or purely bad, but it's a complicated picture. Mm -hmm. How would you try to resolve this Stapleton question? I believe that resolution is entirely in our reach, and it comes with a phrase called cautionary tales and inspirational tales. We wouldn't want to shut those out either. But Benjamin Stapleton is one high-powered cautionary tale. In order to get elected, he took up with the Klan. Later in his phases of life, he regretted that and uh, spoke differently about the Klan. What an opportunity for all of us to consider that example, to meet Stapleton Reflection Day once a year, historians, many of them young, reflecting on this complicated, comparable stories of people who made a compromise with the devil. I think we could probably use that phrase for anybody who um, agrees to support from the Klan. Come together, reflect on it, and at some point then look back at ourselves and ask ourselves where we are not learning from a cautionary tale of Benjamin Stapleman, who made a choice, which was a choice, a regrettable choice. How do we draw on his experience to make our choices wiser? Do you think that that is an event that would happen in Stapleton, the, you know, Mm -hmm. once the airport and now this booming part of Denver? Yes. What a better place, because people don't want to uh, go out of their way for this. If they live there, all the better. And then if it becomes as successful as I think it could, then people will want to... uh, take public transportation maybe to avoid parking problems, and then we would have a very big event and we would set an example for the nation, which so desperately needs such an example now of how to have these conversations in ways that are uh, that conclude with a, with a potluck dinner. I do want to return to this point where we started about when a statue goes up or when a building is named, because uh, as you've already hinted, you think it's really important that that context uh, be considered mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in the future of that name or of that of that statue. Uh, a graphic from the Southern Poverty Law Center shows that most Confederate monuments weren't put up until long after the Civil War ended, 
when states were adopting Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. And then there were more monuments to the Confederacy that went up during the fight for civil rights. Uh, And their claim is that these were ways of intimidating African Americans. Mm -hmm. Will you just say, in in about the last minute here, Patty, um, how that context is important? Well, the context, uh, here we have our Robert E. Lee conversations going on now. And Robert E. Lee said, don't do monuments. Let the wounds heal. So that's an interesting notion that he actually huh. took a side there. So that's fun. Not sure uh, I knew not, that. I'm sure okay. it's fun, but it seems like a good thing that uh, for him to do. So, yes, the, the time of the erection of the monument is a key factor. And if we skip that part and just go skidding back into the distant past, we are really headed for an unnecessary crash. So to say what was going on at the time of the creation of the monument Who funded the monument? Who wanted it? Who argued for it? What were the motives there? That is absolutely essential. That would be a doctor who uh, was treating people in the emergency room and not asking if they'd just been in an accident, not asking for the most recent information, but just saying, well, for heaven's sake, what happened to your leg here? Without asking what has happened in the recent past to you. So absolutely, to look at the, the timing of these choices is to just say, we are moving in a river of time and every few paddling moments, we have to stop and think, where are we and where are we in relationship to the thing in the past that we are arguing about? Patty Limerick is Colorado State historian. She also directs the Center of the American West at CU Boulder. By mid-century, it's estimated that superbugs, bacteria resistant to antibiotics, will lead to more deaths than cancer. Scientists at Colorado State University have found what they hope will one day be an alternative to antibiotics. It's the subject of today's beta test about scientific breakthroughs in Colorado. Bella Neufeld is a graduate student in chemistry at CSU, and she speaks with my colleague Andrea Dukakis about this superbug research. And Bella, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Your goal here is to lessen people's dependence on antibiotics. And just explain for a minute why that's so critical now. So one of the major concerns that we're facing today with bacteria, I really see it as two major concerns. One is this idea of superbugs. So What we have today is a situation where bacteria are becoming increasingly resistant to antibiotics. So we we find ourselves in a situation where when somebody gets an infection, what would normally be the administered dose of antibiotics is no longer working. So people are having increased and prolonged infections, and we really have no way to combat those at this time. Um, And uh, can you, um, I understand you've developed um, something. It isn't a pill you'd swallow or a medicine you'd inject. It's a material that would be put on the surface of an infection. And what you're trying to do is, I guess, stop bacteria before it starts forming something called biofilm. And explain what that is. Correct. So as I mentioned previously, there's two sort of major issues we find with bacteria today. One is this idea of superbugs, and the other is this idea of biofilm. So what that looks like is when bacteria encounter a surface, what they would like to do is attach to that surface and encase themselves in this sticky film-like substance. And once they do that, that's what we call a biofilm. Now, unfortunately for us, once those biofilms are formed, they're incredibly difficult to get rid of. So once they've formed the biofilm, 
antibiotics, traditional antibiotics, have a very difficult time of penetrating those biofilms. So again, once they've formed, we really have no way to get rid of them. So our idea was to sort of come up with a material that can address both these issues of superbugs and biofilm formation. So we wanted to identify a material and evaluate that material such that it would not need to have antibiotics, so no drug-eluting surface, and it would impede the attachment of bacteria in the first place so that biofilm formation would not happen. And therefore, they're not resistant to, you know, any other help too. Precisely. Yeah. So sort of coming at it from two different angles there. And we were, you know, fortunate enough to actually identify and evaluate a material that did just that. Because you could combine this treatment that you've developed with antibiotics as well. Right. So one of the things about biofilm formation is it's thought that it's anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 times more resistant to antibiotics Mm. once it's in that form, in the biofilm form. So if we can keep it from being in that form, antibiotics are much more likely to be effective and we can use lower doses of antibiotics. So it could very much be a synergistic, multi-dual approach situation with many of these challenges we face. As we know, it's not a one-stop shop. Often it's multiple things working together. Can you give me a picture um, of what the material looks like that would do this? Yeah. So if you picture gauze or something like that, sort of a fancy band-aid, if you had a, a pretty intense wound and you would wrap it in some type of gauze, gauze material. That's essentially what we're talking about, sort of a fancier version of gauze. Okay. And people get all kinds of infections. What kinds would this be able to treat? So we specifically were targeting a bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And there's a couple of reasons we chose that. It's a ubiquitous biofilm former. In other words, it readily forms these biofilms on pretty much any surface. Mm. But it's also a pretty nasty bacteria strain. So um, one of the common examples that people are familiar, I think normally familiar with is um, something called cystic fibrosis. And that is usually... A lung infection. Correct. A lung infection. And that's almost always associated with this bacteria strain, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So it's also considered a superbug. It's currently resistant to multiple antibiotics. And so we figure if we can can impede that from forming a biofilm, we're in pretty good shape. What if an infection is inside the body? Does this work internally? I'm trying to imagine putting gauze on an internal organ. Yeah, that's definitely a little bit more complicated. So as soon as we have an internal infection, let's say you don't even know where it is, maybe, um, that's more we're thinking about something like a bloodstream infection. So you could think about sort of your staph infections or something like that. So this would not be necessarily appropriate in that situation. If you needed more, that would be something like a systemic effect. So you Mm -hmm. would uh, do some sort of oral administration of drugs versus this is a much more localized effect. So you have a wound, you want to to increase the wound healing process and not allow bacteria to colonize that wound. So you would use this type of material. And what's in the material? So it is a little bit complicated, but the base form, the the base layer, is actually derived from a natural derivative of what's in um, insect wings and shrimp shells. It's called Mm. chitin. And so it's basically, that's the base layer, so it's a natural product. And then we do a lot of fancy chemistry to it, add a few more ingredients, and and that's our material. Mm. And is the material used for anything else um, at this point, or sort of the substances that go into this material? Um, The material that we've created created, uh, 
has been studied for other other things that are not related to bacteria, but it's, it is considered a biomaterial. So we've looked at it for catalysis for other uh, biomolecules, but nothing has been done so far to look at bacterial adhesion onto a surface. And is this already being used as a treatment or is this a while off? It is not. So this is very preliminary data. The paper has, was just published this month. Um, pretty exciting results. And so it would be it would take a lot more uh, engineering and testing before it gets to that point, I would say. And when do you think that might be? Oh, that's hard to say. That's a tough question. <laughs> Quite a lot of more testing would have to be done. Well, Bella, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Bella Neufeld is a chemistry graduate student at Colorado State University. She and other scientists are developing a new way to fight superbugs. Her research appears in the journal Advanced Functional Materials. Neufeld spoke with Andrea Dukakis as part of Beta Test, our coverage of scientific discovery in Colorado. And as we wind down, we want to bring you the music of musical duo G.V. Grace. G.V. Grace features two of Colorado's best-known independent musicians, husband and wife Griff Snyder from Inner Oceans and Genevieve Patterson of Paper Bird. Together, they create lively synth pop. They moved to Los Angeles but recently came through Denver and stopped by the CPR Performance Studio. Here's G.V. Grace with the song 40 Days. of G.V. Grace. That's our program for today. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our producers include Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle B. Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, and Stephanie Wolf. Our engineers are Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Brady McNellis, and John Zuko. I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or Facebook CPR News. This is Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us.